the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We all, since 9-11, have become alarmingly aware of uh, what is going on in the Muslim world, particularly on the fundamentalist end of things. Um, and as much as we're concerned about the threat to America's safety and security, the American way of life, imagine what people living underneath the oppressiveness of Islam is like in the Middle East. Most difficultly, we have seen many of these stories of women who have been charged under Sharia law courts and have received multiple lashings, uh, situations in countries in the Middle East where women are denied what we consider to be pedestrian of the basic human rights, the opportunity to uh, uh, drive a car, be involved in the elective process, even in some cases receive a basic education. The need, of course, ultimately is to share the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ with these women. And joining me right now is a lady who's done just that, working with her husband as a missionary in the Middle East for almost a decade. Um, they, in fact, to this day, remain actively involved in reaching the unreached people in the Middle East and around the world, bringing the gospel to Muslim women. And Audra Shelby with us on the program tonight. Audra, thanks so much for taking time to join us. Audra, uh, Craig, I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. You have written a book detailing your experiences behind the veils of Yemen. And, of course, we've heard some uh, news in recent months here with Yemen once again back in the news. Uh, we hear at, at, at fleeting chances the opportunity for stories about life for people living behind the Islamic curtain, so to speak, particularly difficult so for women. That's right. And I've been blessed with being able to tell my story and getting behind the veils and visiting and getting into the lives, sharing the lives of these women. Tell us a bit about your experiences. Give us a bit of a, a perspective, if you would. When we hear stories about, well, in certain countries, women are not allowed to vote. Other places, they can't drive. Uh, women are not allowed to be seen in the company of other men unless it's an immediate relative. Uh, can't go to school. We think of the stories that came out of Afghanistan and the tail end of the regime of the Taliban. I mean, it, it, are the levels of extremism, of the lack of rights that women have behind the Islamic curtain, behind the veil, uh, that severe? Uh, it depends on the country and, and the area of the country. In Yemen, women did have the right to vote, and they were allowed to drive, but it all depended on permission of their husbands and support of their husbands. They were always subject to their husbands. Um, I had friends that were not allowed to go to the market or go out in, in the afternoons. They were required to stay indoors unless their husband gave them permission to leave. So you would, I did not know of a woman that was publicly uh, punished like you hear in Afghanistan or in some of the other countries, but I knew women that were beaten by their husbands and who could not 
uh, go out and visit other women because their husbands were too afraid they would run into a man. And then this justified based on Islamic teaching and Sharia law, but in reality, what, just a, a thin excuse for, for uh, male chauvinism uh, on, on steroids? Possibly. I think we have to understand, too, that women... For a woman to go into paradise, a lot of it is based on how well she obeys her husband and how well she raises good Muslim sons. So it's more than just what her husband requires. It's what she feels like she must do in order to achieve paradise. So there's a sense of religious duty behind a lot of this. Yes, there is. And for the average Islamic woman, uh, let's talk your, your directly to your experience in, in Yemen. Give us a thumbnail sketch. What's, what's life like for a woman? Well, let me take you to a bride, okay, who's, who's very excited about the three days of her wedding. She's going to be feted and celebrated by the other women. Ceremony will take place between her husband and her father. She does not attend the actual ceremony at the mosque. She is uh, for three days... Her hair is done, and she's so excited, and girls look forward to the day that they're going to leave their father's dominion and have a home, and they dream of the love that they're going to get from their husbands. They're full of romantic dreams. Now let's flash forward a year later and see this same girl and who has no dreams in her eyes, and I tell about this in Behind the Veils of Yemen, meeting a girl who was just... You could see she'd become so disillusioned and so unhappy a year later, realizing she had only left her father's dominion for her husband's dominion. Well, talk about a stark contrast against the the Western ideal, where women are involved in planning every detail uh, of the wedding and the ceremony and uh, the experience, uh, you know, that everyone will enjoy there at the wedding and, of course, the following reception. And and you're telling me in some Islamic countries the women are not even invited to their own wedding. (laughs) Well, it's, it's a very different scenario. The women have these big parties where they get together for about three days. There's three days generally um, and each day the, the bride wears a different color and then the third day the white day she wears a white wedding gown just like you would find here and she has this big party and the women are all treating her like a princess she sits on a special chair like a throne and then after the actual wedding ceremony takes place between her husband and or her future groom and her father then the, because the men are all partying separately Her husband and the men come in this great convoy of honking horns, and they come to pick up the bride and take her to her new home, to her husband's home, um, a lot of times with his family. And that's how her married life begins. And so it begins with uh, great excitement and anticipation, and and sadly sounds like after a while it ends up being uh, as an oppressive atmosphere at home with her new husband is maybe she had to deal with at home with her parents. Yes, yes, and a lot of times I think that's the way it worked works out in what I've seen among the women. Let's pause for a moment. We'll come back to our conversation. Audra Shelby with us today. She's author of Behind the Veils of Yemen, How an American Woman Risked Her Life, Family, and Faith to Bring Jesus to Muslim Women. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
talking with Andra Shelby, which, by the way, is not her real name. We're just kind of helping to protect her anonymity because um, she has, for over a decade, been involved in sharing the good news of the gospel with Muslim women. She has a new book out called Behind the Veils of Yemen, How an American Woman Risked Her Life, Family, and Faith to Bring Jesus to Muslim Women. Andra, when we think of the level of oppression within Islamic society, particularly in the Middle East, and Sharia law, and so on and so forth, and a lot of this both religious and cultural. Uh, clearly, uh, life is pretty mundane and pretty oppressive for women. I would suspect that into that atmosphere, interjecting the good news of Jesus Christ must have been, I would imagine, regarded as a, a tremendous hope for these women, wouldn't it be? Well, you would think that. Now, even as poor and as, as needy as the women were, they looked on me as an infidel and as inferior to them. And so even at the beginning, they have been told, a lot of them are illiterate, 98% of Yemeni women out in villages are illiterate, don't know how to read or write or add or subtract. So all they know about their religion is what they have been told, and all they know about Christianity is what they've been told, or what they've seen in American films. So their concept of American women are that we are immoral, corrupt women who sleep around and don't love our children. So when I would see them, and they would meet me, or meet a Christian face-to-face for the first time, they were totally stunned that I wasn't who I was supposed to be, that I was very different from what they had been told. So it wasn't this hunger to know. It was at first a disdainful attitude, and then to realize, wait, you're not the person that that you're supposed to be, and then wanting to know what the difference was, why I wasn't that person, and then seeing a strength in me. So many of my friends, and I tell about instances in Behind the Veils of Yemen where they would say, Antikawiya. You're, you're strong, wanting to know why. Why wasn't I afraid to ride in a taxi with, where there was a man? Why wasn't I fr- afraid of being sick and, and dying? Um, and that opened avenues to share with them uh, why I wasn't afraid, because I walked with Jesus. So you really had to initially move from dispelling a lot of the misconceptions Correct. that no doubt are very much played up in Islamic media and uh, certainly by the imams and mosques and the men and so on and so forth to paint this very negative, vile picture of what Western women are all about. So you overcome that, that misconception and then, in that process, I mean, I would imagine, as we regard and see the teachings of the the uh, the God small G of Allah within the Quran and the Hadith, to be this ruthless, bloodthirsty, fearful, uh, vengeful deity, and then contrast that against the God of the Bible, who sacrifices his very own Son for forgiveness and reconciliation to the creation. I mean, you look at those two major differences between Allah of the Quran and the God of the Bible, and I would imagine that once they begin to see and and grasp some level of the stark contrast between the two, that must be eye-opening for them. It is. It's a slow process because they have to see it in me first because they are so... um, They're so prepared. They're so keyed to the Bible being corrupt that they don't want to hear anything from my book. It's corrupted. They don't believe 
and my my Jesus of the New Testament because they have been told that all of it is lies. So at first, actually, they don't even want to hear it. And it's seeing something different in me and seeing the love and actually trying to almost sponge it out of me, squeeze it from me to fill their lives, that's what really helps them see something's missing. There's something I have that they don't. Um, and seeing the limits of their religion when they're in, in total despair um, and wanting what I have in mind, that has been more opening in their lives than just trying to to share um, the truth of Scripture. I'm not saying not sharing the truth of Scripture, but I'm saying using it in everyday life, using it constant as my reasons for why. Uh, why I believe, why I'm strong, why I'm not afraid, why I love, why my husband loves me and is my friend, not my owner. In the end, give me kind of your um, your evaluation of your experience there in Yemen for almost a decade. Well, it was it was a wonderful time. It was probably the most challenging time of my life. It was sweet in its dependence on the Lord and in seeing Him and knowing Him in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. It was, uh, I, I felt constantly drained just by the need of the women. I, I felt stretched to meet the needs, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, the mental needs, even physical needs. Um, but it was such a, a rewarding time to know what it means to realize my strength is limited, but Christ is not, that he is everything he says he is and is everything that I need and more than enough to meet any need. And, and it, it was a wonderful time of learning and growing in me, which I think in Behind the Veils of Yemen, I think I grew as much as the women that I met grew in, in my ministering to them. In that sense, did it also, in your experience, draw you closer to the Lord, um, particularly as you've seen the, the major contrast, not just between uh, Western society and Middle Eastern society, but two, the major differences between the, the teachings of what is the, the lie of Islam and the truth of the gospel? Absolutely. I mean, we, we never lived in Yemen that there wasn't a travel warning against being there. And you had, I had to come face to face with who God is and walk totally by faith and totally dependent on Him for survival, for safety, for security. And it was, it was a sweet dependence in seeing Him and knowing that you are totally reliant on Him. I mean, His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. And it was a, it was a wonderful blessing to be able to experience that without the comforts that sometimes distract us from knowing him. During that time, um, I would assume, Audra, that you had an opportunity to lead some of these women to Christ, even if it was done kind of uh, uh, quietly and surreptitiously? Yes, yes, I was. I was able to share scripture. I was able to share my faith. I was able to share the story of Jesus uh, with women many times, just in answering to their question. Um, and it was, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see women that have so much need to be loved and to be valued and have so many dreams of their own that will never be fulfilled by their religion to see and to have hope in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, uh, how startling the change, the contrast in their life? 
Well, you have to remember that it is a startling change internally and and spiritually. But then they face um, reality. It's against the law for a Yemeni person, man or woman, to convert out of Islam. It is punishable by death, usually instigated by a family member. And we knew several people that were turned over to authorities by their own family, by their father, by their brother, by their husband, or by a wife. And then they go on severe persecution and torture in an effort to make them recant the Christian faith. So uh, women in Yemen especially are very, and men, it's a very social culture. Everything they do is communal. And to be cut off and shut off from their people, from their families, from their home is devastating. It's a real challenge to, uh, for them as they adapt and grow in their Christian faith to realize they've lost everything to follow Jesus. Clearly a, 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 a very sad and oppressive uh culture and and religion, and yet one that, in spite of all of that, uh, can receive great freedom that comes through the saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Audra, we appreciate your time. Folks can get more information about this new book, Behind the Veils of Yemen by Audra Grace Shelby, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those still exist, don't they, Richard? One or two, I think, yeah. (laughs) One. (laughs) And, of course, through Amazon.com. The book published by Chosen, again, Behind the Veils of Yemen. Our special guest today, Audra Grace Shelby. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Brooks, is this becoming a bit of a pandemic, not only in terms of the reporting, but just in terms of the methodology by which police can carry out their bullying? And I ask that question because back in the day, it would be maybe an audience of a half a dozen kids and bully engaging in whatever bad behavior that he or she was engaged with. That was about the extent of it. Today, you can easily go online and extend your bullying of an individual to the tune of hundreds or thousands. In fact, recently, Consumer Reports found that over 800,000 kids had been victims of bullying on Facebook. You know, I think the uh, the statistics that I've uh, seen is about 8% of students are relentlessly uh, victimized. And I think it's victimization, not necessarily bullying, but it's victimization that's becoming uh, an epidemic or pandemic. I I just wish that, um, I wish students would, would not suffer. Um, and when you interview the so-called bullies, which I've, I've met with hundreds and hundreds of students who have been uh, labeled as aggressors or bullies, and not one of them have said, yes, I'm a bully. Uh, and then I say, well, what in the world? Why did you say that to that person? Why did you do that to that person? And they say, well, because she did this to me and he did this to me. And I say, oh, so you don't see yourself as a bully. You see yourself as a victim. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a victim. You know, these students who are so mean often feel justified in their retaliation of their perceived enemy. And they get labeled bullies. But when you talk to them, in one-on-one conversation, they actually feel like victims. And the worst acts of violence in the world, whether it be homicide or suicide, the two very acts that we are afraid of in this industry, of anti-bullying industry, those are always committed by people who feel like victims, not bullies. It's almost a cycle then, isn't it? Because as you're describing it then, it is a person who feels as if they are a victim somehow, victimizing a victim, and it just begins as sort of an endless cycle. 
Yeah, it is, and that's why teaching very basic social skills to your children is uh, the greatest way to help bully-proof children. If you victim-proof them, you'll bully-proof them. And one way to do that, there's really three ways. Number one, uh, have a sense of humor. An emotionally healthy child can learn to take a joke about themselves and make a joke about themselves. They know they are not perfect, and they might have a flaw that could be exploited as a joke. And if you study humor, you realize all humor is insults. And so a person with a good sense of humor will be able to even insult themselves or be able to laugh at an insult at someone else. So, uh, you know, get off your high horse, parent, and uh, lighten up and laugh and teach your child to do the same, that we could all make fun of ourselves. Roasts, celebrity roasts are a great example of emotional healthiness. Uh, The second thing is um, learn that, um, you know, Sometimes people consider you the bully, and you've wronged them somehow. You really, really wronged them, and so they're mean to you. And So the best thing you can teach your child to do is say, why are you mad at me, and if I've done anything, can I apologize? That's the second thing. But the third and final thing is if someone's just trying to bully you just for the fun of it, realize that the only way they will continue is if you get upset and try to make them stop. But if you don't get upset and you give them permission to be a jerk and you say, feel free to be mean, I don't care, it doesn't affect me, you guard your heart and you don't get upset and you stop trying to stop them, then they're going to get bored and leave you alone. And uh, the best example is a dog chasing its tail. If the dog <laughs> the dog sees it moving in the corner of his eye and he's programmed to chase things to try to make it stop, and he ends up going in circles, never catching his tail, but if he could just realize stop running, you know, and uh, and the tail will stop, you know, leaving you. And the same thing with children. Stop trying to insist that the bully stops being mean and stop getting upset, and they'll fizzle and leave you alone. Those well, there's, And there's a bigger things. picture here, maybe, and, and I'm glad you brought up that analogy of the dog chasing its cha- tail, because it, it seems as if we're trying to restrict this conversation, generally speaking, to bullying that takes place on playgrounds, on campuses. It's all about the kids. But you know what, Brooks? In, in my lifetime, I have known office bullies. I've known colleagues that I would consider to be bullies, not many of them, but they do exist out there. Uh, this kind of antisocial behavior, as we pointed out in the first segment, is really indicative of, of man's fallen nature, of our sin condition, and not necessarily because of, of you know any kind of un- unique DNA to one individual or another that just makes them nasty toward other people. And so it would seem to me that if we take the approach that we're trying to stop mean people from being mean and, and trying to train our children to... Uh, uh, to react in that fashion, we're, we're, we're creating a scenario where that dog is going to continue to chase its tail into adulthood because, let's face it, how, how, well, how are you going to deal with the bully in the office and the bully in the next cubicle? The, the irony here is that we're, we're trying to offer a placebo to, to address an issue in childhood because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but aren't we, in the end, ill-preparing our kids for the reality of adult life? I think so. I think we should teach children that, hey, if someone's, um, if they're causing objective harm to your body or property, or if they're limiting your liberty, or they're causing you to lose your job, or they're beating you up to a bloody pulp, or they're stealing your stuff or vandalizing your property, those are very real crimes that we have laws against, and we need to keep ourselves from being a very true acute victim. Uh, on the other hand, if they're just trying to hurt your feelings, 
um, you know, that's something that you can protect, that laws cannot protect. Um, and, and besides, if you said something that hurt somebody's feelings, would you like to be punished for that? Uh, the forefathers gave us a First Amendment right to free speech on the premise that the American citizens would have the, uh, the ironclad social skills to be able to take uh, a negative opinion about them or a different approach or disbelief in their religion or whatever it is so that everyone could be free to speak, which is the democratic cornerstone of all liberty. Uh, so if we lose that, if we lose the differentiation between objective harm and subjective harm, real crimes versus hurting our feelings, if that line becomes blurred, then we create a culture of victimhood, we create an emotional welfare state where the citizens believe the government's responsible to give them utopia without any negative social skills, and that is really the definition of emotional uh, illness. If you've just joined our conversation, Brooks Gibbs on the line with us tonight. We're talking about this topic of bullying and what exactly it is, how we are responding to it. We're hearing more and more news stories of late that have been filled with terrible stories of bullying uh, to the point where some kids, as we uh, shared one story of Maricela with you at the top of the hour, uh, considering committing suicide, attempting suicide, over bullying. I'm not trying to suggest that some kids' behavior cannot be absolutely cruel, but at the same token, there seems to be a lack of balance that we're failing to strike here. How common is this issue of bullying? Oh, I'll give you an example that I think will resonate with you immediately. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It would be nice if we could say, let's try to shut down bullies. Let's do a better job at uh, dealing with aggressive behavior. But the reality is we can't always do that. And the reality is that the only one that we have any power or control over is ourselves. As we're learning tonight from Brooks Gibbs, National Social Skills Educator, he's taught more than 2 million students in some 1,500 schools and campuses all across North America how to better address this issue of bullying. And at the end of the day, it really becomes not trying to foster this culture of kindness and singing kumbaya with our enemies, but rather understanding that at the end of the day, it would be better if we did a better job at developing our kids to become more resilient. Speak to that point, would you, Brooks? Well, resilience is something every parent wants for their child. If you ask any parent, would you like your child to be emotionally resilient or hypersensitive to things that don't cause them physical harm, like insults and stuff? They would always say, oh, yeah, like emotionally resilient. But when their child becomes a victim of, quote, unquote, bullying, mean behavior, uh, they don't like the idea that we are asking their child to become more resilient. They want you to punish the bully, kick the bully out of school. And so what happens is when you suggest emotional resilience as the solution to their child's bullying problems, uh, they say you're victim blaming. And I, I, I always say, no, we're not victim blaming. You know, earlier, Craig, you said it's pouring rain right now. And now it's not, it's not anyone's fault that the rain is falling. But if you own a house, it's your responsibility to make sure that it's rainproof. Uh, you have to take personal responsibility. If it snows, it's not your fault. No one can blame you for do, for not doing something you didn't mean to do, right? It's snowing. You, it's outside of your control. 
but it's your responsibility to shovel the sidewalk. Now, uh, that is what we're asking students to do. Take personal responsibility for your own feelings and your own problems, and uh, don't expect everyone around you to be respectful. Uh, and when you do that, you'll be less vic- you'll less likely to be victimized and more likely to uh, be happy. You suggested earlier, Brooks, that one of the more effective techniques in addressing this is to use humor. Uh, to sort of, um, how should we say, derail any of the control that a bully has over another person in 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 responding, and I and it, it's interesting that you mention that because I think of the the scripture mandate that we should um, uh, you know uh, love our enemy, and in doing so have the effect of heaping coals upon their head, but we're not asked to heap coals upon our, our, their head. We're asked to love our enemy. So give me an example. Let's do some role play, playing here so parents can better understand how this works. You suggested returning humor for a nasty word. So if I came up to you and we're on the campus at school and uh, we just walked up and I said to you, uh, Brooks, where did you get that haircut? It looks like they put a ball on top of your head. Well, if I was a typical kid, I would say, what are you talking about? You better stop it right now, Craig. You better stop right now. And, and then, of course, you'd call the teacher over, and the teacher would come yeah. and report, and yeah. we'd all have but to meet in the principal's office. Right. If you So say that now to me, uh, and I'll respond with a, with a comment that's humorous, to your point. Brooks, where did you get that haircut? It's so ugly, it looks like somebody put a bowl over your head. Oh, you you don't like this? This is my tribute to Jimmy Neutron, man. It's like the first cartoon guy. <laughs> <laughs> And I got to tell listeners that was not rehearsed. That was completely spontaneous. No. <laughs> so I mean, humor is amazing. You know, uh, humor. It's even you don't even have to be that sophisticated. Some people say, "Well, you know what? Uh, my kid isn't that sophisticated. He's not going to be able to come up with a punchline." Well, you know, it's very interesting. Bill Cosby. He's a legendary comedian, and he wrote a book called So. And the concept was, if someone says, "Hey, little Bill, your mom's poor," he would just reply with, "So." Hey, little Bill, y'all live in a shack. So, he would just reply, so, or the word and, your point is, and. That's humorous, man. And that that takes all the uh, the power away from the individual who's trying to upset you. So it really is about taking the weapon of words away from them, disarming them. If they, if they realize that you're not going to play the game... Uh, you, you, you de-escalate the situation quite rapidly, don't you? Oh, totally. You nailed it, man. If, someone, if everyone's just listening for a second and they want to know what bullying is, anywhere in the world that's doing seminars on bullying, they always say the same thing. Bullying is an imbalance of power. Someone's having power over you. Power to do what? Power to drive you crazy. And as long as you keep getting upset, you're giving them power over you. But the second, I mean the second, you could care less about what they say. You give them freedom to be mean. Who cares? And you respond with kindness or humor or whatever. Then you maintain your power. They feel like losers, and they leave you alone. It's that simple. And the reality is the bully is looking for a rise. The bully is looking for a certain type of reaction. They want to get under your skin. They want to irritate you. They want to make you cry. They want to, um, they want to extract out of you some kind of a negative reaction. If you react positively, if you, if you return humor or kindness for their nastiness, uh, what are they going to do to retaliate? Start being nice to you? Well, I guess that's the only option left. 
Well, uh, at, at the very least, they'll leave you alone, but at the very most, they'll be nice to you. That's why the golden rule is the ancient solution to the modern bullying problem. It says uh, treat others not the way they're treating you, but treat others the way you want to be treated. And people are like, why? Well, because we're biologically wired for reciprocity, and as I'm nice to you, you're going to naturally want to be nice to me. So, yeah, the golden rule is genius. Jesus says on that one law... You know, love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says the golden rule in that is all the law and the prophets. Uh, so I think we need to bring back the golden rule. Now, let's make a distinction here. You're not suggesting that if it turns violent, if it becomes an illegal act, I mean, for example, kids posting terrible things on the Internet, things of that sort, you do mm-hmm. draw the line at certain types of bullying behavior, correct, in terms of the response. Yeah, so the golden rule in love allows you to stop people from committing crimes. So it's a very loving thing to uh, stop someone from shooting up a theater or something terrible like that. It's, it's the loving thing to do is to stop that person from damaging. Uh, but that's, that's, yeah, criminal behavior that's causing objective harm to body or property. But if it's just subjective feelings, meaning my feelings are hurt if they're subject to how I process it, how I think about those words, well then, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Well, that can't be a crime, and that's where you can respond, love, and and, and love uh, never fails. Let's talk about resources, Brooks, because I know a lot of this information is new. This has not been the traditional approach to bullying in, in recent years. And, of course, the irony is, as hard as school districts and administrators have tried to push this whole, let's just stop the bullies, uh, the irony is they seem to become more prevalent. So clearly a lot of that approach is not working. But in terms of resources for parents so they can get a better handle on, um, you know, how to encourage their kids to do a better job at making friends, managing their enemies, uh, how, to, how to deal with the issue of aggressive behavior when someone comes at you, and then most importantly, how to build resilient kids. What kind of resources can you make available? You bet. We have what we call the one-week bully cure. That's B-U-L-L-Y, bully, and then cure, C-U-R-E. If you go to bullycure.com, uh, we literally take the parent and we take the student and we take them through a one-week, six days, up, uh, video training, and we say, man, if if that bullying doesn't stop within that six days, you, you can have your money back. Uh, you know, we, we, we failed to help you. And uh, we've helped thousands and thousands of people within three days just going through our program. It's over. It's done. You know, the child has happiness. The parent has peace. Uh, because when the child's suffering, the parent suffers just as much. And so uh, that's what we've created, BullyCure.com. And, of course, the beauty of this is it's not only preparing our kids to become more resilient in the here and now, but every adult listening, you know, you run across them all the time. People that you work with or next-door neighbors all across life, we run into people that fit that bully profile. Maybe it's not as juvenile as the example of what took place on the campus when you were in third grade. But the source of the behavior, the motivation behind the behavior, the acting out comes from the same place. It's just taking in a bit of taking place in a bit of a different form. So we're really talking about better preparing our kids not only to deal with bullies today, but to deal with bullies later on in life as well. Bullycure.com is the website. Bullycure. 
Brooksgibbs.com. Great resource for you. We thank Brooks Gibbs for being with us on the program tonight. And again, a wonderful resource. I want to encourage you, if you have a parent who, who has a student that's dealing with this issue, you need some, some insight and advice, great place to check out, BullyCure.com. That's BullyCure.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.